So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains descriptions of violence and domestic abuse, so it may not be suitable for everyone. It was April 18th, 2020. Clinton Ellison and his brother Corey were back in Portapique, Nova Scotia, visiting their dad. Clinton lived about an hour and a half away in Halifax. Corey had come from Truro, just 30 minutes by car. That evening, Clinton and Corey were just sitting around, listening to music and talking. At about 10 p.m., they heard a single gunshot in the distance. But they didn't think much of it. That's not an uncommon sound in rural Nova Scotia. Not so long after my father came down, we asked him if he heard the single gunshot. He said no. That's Clinton Ellison talking to CBC News a few days after these events. We stepped out front of his house and looked, and we could see a large glow in the sky from a very large fire. Clinton's brother Corey said he was going to check out the fire to make sure that everything was okay. Their father warned Corey not to go out. My brother said, I'll be right back. I was sitting there with my dad, and we were waiting and waiting and waiting. My brother didn't come back. Finally, finally, he phoned. And he says, listen, the fire's really bad. I'm taking pictures. Call the fire department. So they called, and then they waited for Corey, but he didn't come back. Clinton started to get worried. And I walked up the road looking for my brother with a flashlight. My father come with me so far, but he stopped at the end of his driveway and turned around and went back in his house. I walked up. I walked up looking for my brother with a flashlight. And I could see a body laying on the side of the road. As I got closer, I could see it was my brother. I got one more step closer, I could see blood, and he wasn't moving. Clinton shut his flashlight off, turned around, and ran for his life. It was completely dark. I went up the first cottage road or street or whatever access to the cottage that I could I got up there to about a bend and I stopped I was exhausted no to breath Clinton turned around and just down the road he could see what appeared to be a person with a flashlight they were looking for someone they were looking for Clinton he ran into the woods and lay on the ground trying his best not to make a sound and as he lay there the world around him seemed to be erupting all I could hear was explosions from the fires and gunshots coming all from all around me. He waited motionless for about an hour before he called his dad. And when I thought it was safe, I phoned my dad and told him, phone the police, phone the police. I think Corey's shot and dead. And I said, I said, shut the lights off and hide. 
And he said, yes, I will. I said, don't, I said, don't call me back. I don't want my phone to light up. And I laid on the ground, and I nearly froze to death. Clinton's dad called the cops, and Clinton continued to wait in the woods, praying that the police would come. It's associated to this. We just got another call. There's a male that's in the woods on Orchard Beach Road just past the school teacher's house. It's a big house with a white car in the driveway, and he uh, told our caller that his brother's dead up the road, and he's uh, too scared to answer his phone, so he's hiding there. Hey, Clinton, Ellison. The police tried to find Clinton and get him to come out of the woods, but he was terrified. If that's you that's coming towards him, he says he sees a light coming towards him, but there's something in the woods to the left of you. What he didn't know was that the man who had killed his brother was still at large. And the police were worried that he might be lying in wait, ready to kill the RCMP. Yeah, he doesn't appear to be coming out at all. Uh, we're wondering if someone's trying to set us up for an ambush and they see the big truck here and they don't they want us to come out. If you could tell him to walk down to the intersection, we'll be here waiting for him. Okay, he sees something strange in the woods on the right-hand side, so he's, he's terrified that he will walk towards the beach, but I believe he's on Port and Pitt Crescent, so he's going to be eating, hitting that Orchard Beach Drive there um, in, a, in a bit if I can get him convinced to walk that way. Eventually, the RCMP were able to save Clinton Ellison. He's trying to drive out of the road there. He can sort of see your lights. starting to walk towards your lights, so he's going to start coming towards you, dressed all in black. We got him. It was the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced in my life to walk up and find my brother dead and to be hunted by this fellow that killed all these people. I'll be, I'll be traumatized for the rest of my life. Clinton Ellison emerged from the woods into a nightmare, burning houses, bodies lying on the roadside, and the man who had caused it all was nowhere to be found. Gabriel Wartman had killed 13 people in the small rural community of Portapique. By this point, the RCMP had convinced themselves that he had shot himself and was lying dead in the area. They were wrong. Wartman's rampage was far from over. He was still out there, somewhere in rural Nova Scotia. And he was dressed to look exactly like an RCMP officer. Almost a year after the worst mass shooting in modern Canadian history, Nova Scotians are still in the dark about what exactly happened. A gunman, dressed in an RCMP uniform, driving an RCMP cruiser, killed over a dozen of his neighbors. And then he was allowed to escape, and he killed nine more people. In the months since, the Mounties have been short on answers, and it's left people wondering whether they have something to hide, and whether or not this horrific debacle could spell the end of the RCMP as we know it. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. Portapique is a tiny community with around 100 full-time residents. Well, it's a beautiful shore. It feels 
like a place apart. This is the Minas Basin, the highest tides in the world. So you have this amazing show every day it takes place in the bay where vast amounts of water come in and go out. That's Stephen Marr, a freelance journalist who mostly writes for McLean's magazine. Marr grew up in nearby Truro, and last year, after 15 years of living in Ottawa, he moved back to Nova Scotia. As a young fellow, I used to attend dances at the old dance hall in port So I, I know the area well. When Marr was growing up, there was a good amount of economic activity in the area. Shipbuilding, forestry, flounder fishing, and farming. But over time, the jobs began to disappear, and young people left to find work in the cities. Someone told me there used to be a dozen gas stations between Great Village and Parsborough, and now there's one. So you see there's a kind of slow economic decline. Today, most of the residents are retirees who come for the quiet and the outdoors. That made Gabriel Wartman a little bit of an outlier. Hello, my name is Gabriel Wortman. I'm a licensed dentist here in the province of Nova Scotia. I run a company called Atlantic Denture Clinic. Gabriel Wortman was a 52-year-old denturist. He was originally from New Brunswick. He bought a place in Portapique and bought uh, several other properties as well. Wortman lived in Portapique with his common-law wife and employee, Lisa Banfield. He could be a gregarious person and seem kind-hearted. He helped some local people provide people with dentures. So, you know, he did help people at different times. But I have also spoken to people who steered clear of him after he said things to them that they found disturbing. Gabriel Wartman had a history of violence. In 2001, he was charged with assault after he randomly beat a 15-year-old boy who was standing outside of his denture clinic. Wortman's father told Frank Magazine that his son had beaten him unconscious while they were vacationing together in Cuba. And the neighbors have said that they either witnessed or heard secondhand that Wortman was physically abusive to his common-law wife. Here's Brenda Forbes, who used to live in Portapique, speaking to Global News. I was at work at the cadet camp, and um, I was talking to Gabriel's uncle, Glenn Wortman, and he said that there was him and two of the other guys from Portapic on Gabriel's property that was in the back area, and Gabriel had Lisa on the ground, and he was strangling her, beating on her. Glenn was just too afraid to do anything, but one of the other guys stepped up and tried to interfere, and Lisa cried out, Don't stop. You're going to just make it worse. She says that she told the police, but they didn't do anything. Global News confirmed that story with Glenn Wartman, who witnessed the abuse firsthand. And it appears that Wartman had a deep interest in the police, specifically the RCMP. He does seem to have been obsessed with the RCMP, but he also apparently had disdain for them. Wartman had two family members who were RCMP officers. In his high school yearbook, he expressed a desire to one day join the force. He went to his cousin's uh, graduation at depot in Regina when he was around 13 and apparently was impressed by that. In his older life, he associated with a lot of Mounties. There are stories of him sort of partying with Mounties at a cottage or a camp, as they call it, in Nova Scotia. 
just hobnobbing with the police. He sort of liked hobnobbing with the police. That's Paul Palango. He's a journalist who's been covering this story for a variety of publications, including the Halifax Examiner, McLean's, and Frank magazine. Despite his apparent affection for the RCMP, in 2011, the Truro Police Department received a tip that Gabriel Wortman had said that he'd wanted to kill a cop and that he possessed illegal weapons. Wortman never tried to become a Mountie, but he did collect memorabilia. And in 2018, he began to buy decommissioned RCMP vehicles. So what was it that prompted Wortman to go on a murderous rampage in April? The truth is, we don't entirely know. The closest thing we have right now comes from partially redacted police documents that have been coming out over the last year. Here's what they say. On the evening of April 18th, Gabriel Wortman and his partner Lisa Banfield were celebrating their 19th anniversary together. They were on a Zoom call with friends at a building that Wortman owned called The Warehouse. It was essentially a big hangout space. Banfield told police that they got in an argument and that she went back to the cottage to go to bed. She says that Wortman woke her up in a rage and attacked her. He then set fire to the cottage, took Banfield back to the warehouse, and set that on fire too. He burnt down both buildings. He took um, a number of firearms, two long guns and two uh, pistols, all of which were illegal. Banfield said that Wortman handcuffed her and put her in the back of one of his decommissioned police cars. She told police that she was able to get away and hide out in the woods until 6.30 a.m. Wortman then put on an RCMP uniform he had, got into his replica RCMP cruiser, and began to kill his neighbors. It's not clear to me how he selected all of these people. Some of them were people that he knew. Some of them, he did not appear to have had any reason to have a beef with them. At around 10 p.m., he showed up at the home of the Blairs, a family he knew. He shot and killed Greg Blair on his doorstep. His wife, Jamie Blair, called the police and tried to protect the two small children in the house. Wartman killed her and began to set the house on fire. Lisa McCulley lived next door, and at 10.05, she saw the fires in the distance, and she called the police. She noticed a man in an RCMP uniform outside, so she approached him. It was Wartman. He killed her, too. Inside, Lisa McCulley's two children hid. Not long after, the two Blair children ran into the house looking for help. The four kids called 911 and hid out in the basement for hours until eventually the police rescued them. Another couple noticed the fires burning and decided to go see what was happening. As they were driving, they saw an RCMP cruiser sitting on the road, empty. They got to the fire and realized it was Wartman's garage. And as they were driving back, they were on the phone with emergency services to tell them about the fire. This was around 20 minutes after Jamie Blair had called 911 to report her husband's murder. And while they were still on the phone with emergency services, they noticed that someone was in that previously empty RCMP vehicle. They slowed down and rolled down their windows to talk to the officer. It was Wartman. He rolled down his window and shot at them, hitting the husband twice. The wounds weren't fatal, 
and the couple was able to get away. By now, the actual RCMP had arrived on the scene. The injured couple came across three officers and told them what happened. Wortman then killed several more people and set some of their houses on fire. One of the things we know is that he appears to have been using the fires as a way of drawing more victims out of their homes. So he would set a fire and then he would sit in the police car and wait for people to come. Uh, We don't know. There's probably at least six or more that have burned to the foundation. The timeline here is fairly murky. But Wartman was able to kill 13 people during his rampage at port pic Police had blocked off the nearby highway, but they now claim that at around 10.45 p.m., Wartman was able to get away. He then escaped through a back road, through a blueberry field, a road that does not appear as a road on Google Maps, for instance, and drove away to to Birch, where he parked overnight next to a welding shop that was known to him. He discarded some items from his vehicle. They let him get away that night. They did not issue an emergency alert. They did not put up roadblocks. Instead of an emergency alert, the RCMP sent out a tweet at 11.32 p.m. It talked about a firearms complaint in the port pic area. The emergency response team, a specialized RCMP unit, arrived at 12.45, almost three hours after the first 911 calls. Gabriel Wartman was long gone, but the cops didn't know that. Instead, they tracked down three cars that were registered to him. And the police say that because of that, they'd assumed that Wartman had killed himself and that his body was somewhere in the immediate area. It was a fatal assumption. After sunrise, Wartman continued his rampage. In the morning, he went to kill a couple of people who were known to him. He killed a bystander who came to see what was going on with a building on fire. And then he killed three women. One woman was taking a walk. Two other women were VON nurses out on their rounds. So he's killing people just at random at this point. The police have not been able to find him. He's always head of the police. This is now 12 hours after his killing spree began. Wartman drove through Truro and then towards Halifax. On the way, he came across RCMP Constable Scott Morrison and shot at him hitting him in the arm. The officer was able to get away. Another RCMP constable, Heidi Stevenson, was nearby on her way to meet up with Morrison. Wartman ran his car into hers. They exchanged fire, and he killed her. This is so fucked. He's in that car. He's in that car. They're dragging him out. Look, they're dragging somebody. Oh, my God. That's a... That's a a real car, huh? He just killed a real cop right in front of us. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Oh, my fuck. This is fucking crazy. Is he in there? I'm, like, shaking. We should move. Like, what if he's alive and he, like, shoots... Wartman killed Joey Weber, who saw the cruiser on fire and came to help. He stole his SUV and drove off. He uh, stops for gas in Enfield, near the Halifax airport, and two RCMP officers see him there, recognize him from pictures they've seen of him from his phones, and shoot him to death. 
They got the killer right here. They got him on lockdown. They're going for him right now. They got the killer right here. Oh, they got him, bud. They shot him. I heard the four shots. I heard the four shots, bud. There he is. They got him. Holy fucking guns everywhere. Just He's in the parking lot with the cop, the trucks are. Oh, my God. No, no, bro. I got to turn around. Wow. This is fucking crazy. He was coming here, bud. This was this was no joke. Over 13 hours, Wortman killed 23 people and injured three more. It's the deadliest mass shooting in modern Canadian history. In a previous life, Paul Polango worked as a reporter and editor for many years, and his greatest interest was in the RCMP. Over the course of more than two decades, he wrote three books about the Mounties, and none of them were flattering. Now, for 25 years, I've been trying to say this is a forest that's a danger to the public and a danger to its own members. And people go, yeah, 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 yeah. But think about the musical ride. Isn't that entertaining? In recent years, he's been living a quieter life in Nova Scotia, working as a glass artist. He first heard about what had happened in Portapic the morning of the 19th, when Gabriel Wartman was still at large. Oddly enough, on the morning of the 19th, my wife first heard about it, and she said, there's something going on here with a guy in a police car. And I came downstairs, had a coffee. I looked at what I could see. There wasn't very much. But I, knowing what I know about how policing works and how the RCMP works, I thought there's something really strange here, something going on that's not right. I looked at the map, and I could see that there's not that many roads. There's a thousand mounties in, in uh, Nova Scotia. Plus almost a thousand other police in various municipal forces. So why couldn't they block the roads? This guy had been roaming around from the previous night. So I thought there was something seriously wrong. Paul wasn't the only person with questions. In the immediate aftermath, the family members of the victims wondered why hadn't the RCMP issued an emergency alert? Many of them believed that their loved ones would still be alive if they had been given all the information. That was especially true for the nine people who were killed in the morning of the 19th outside of Portapic. Here's Nick Beaton talking to CTV News two days after his wife Kristen was killed by Wartman. If I had known he was on the loose, I would have not let my wife leave the house that day. Kristen worked as a nurse and was on her way to work. And when Nick saw on the news that Gabriel Wartman was still on the loose, he called her. I spoke to my wife minutes before her life was taken on the phone. In our last conversation, I said to her that I found out that he was in Mastown at someone's house that we know. And my last conversation to her was, if you see a car broke down the side of the road, someone hitchhiking, someone avoid them, do whatever you can, you know, don't stop for anybody. Don't, you know, just, and if, if he stands in front of you, run him over. And I sent her the picture, his picture, so she knew. Wow. She read it. And she never read my next, very next text message. As Nick Beaton was messaging his wife, the RCMP hadn't yet revealed that Wortman was dressed as an RCMP officer and driving a replica police vehicle. They didn't want us then. I didn't know until after my wife's life was taken that he was in a cruiser 
a police RCMP fully decked police cruiser in a full uniform. The RCMP has claimed that they didn't know that Wortman was driving a replica police car until the morning of the 19th. But that's not true. They were told by the couple who survived their encounter with Wortman at 10.30 p.m. the night before. It took them 12 hours to reveal to the public that he was impersonating an RCMP officer. Even as the RCMP was failing to send out an emergency alert to the public, the U.S. consulate in Nova Scotia sent an email warning American citizens who lived in the area about the danger. In the days immediately after the massacre, some family members felt disrespected and ignored by the police. Here's Clinton Ellison again, who you heard from at the top of the episode, talking to the CBC days after his brother was killed. To my knowledge, the RCMP still haven't told my father that his son is dead. It took me forever and phone calls and asking and asking and asking for them finally to tell me my brother was dead. And here's Darcy Dobson, whose mother, Heather O'Brien, was killed by Wortman in a CTV interview around the same time. It's been a really, really hard three or four days getting information from anybody about anything. We we have questions we want answered. This entire family does. I want to know why an RCMP officer has not knocked on my father's front door and told them how sorry they are. There's been nobody. It took them a day and a half to even call. And we understand that there are more victims and there are tons of people who are missing their loved ones, but there's also enough RCMP officers in Nova Scotia that at least one could have gone to every single family. Heather O'Brien was killed in her car. And disturbingly, Dobson says that when the RCMP returned the car to the family, they hadn't cleaned it out. Here's Sandra McCulloch, who's a lawyer representing the family members of the victims. Family members further discovered ways in which uh, the RCMP arguably didn't handle their investigation appropriately, including one one of the deceased families having received a vehicle back with remnants of their loved one inside. There's one thing above everything else that people want to know. Did the RCMP do everything they could to stop Gabriel Wortman and protect the people of Nova Scotia? That question has preoccupied Paul Polango. The one thing that really attracted me to there being a problem in this investigation, way back when, in the first week, was the obituary of Lisa McCulley. Lisa McCulley, you'll remember, was one of Wortman's first victims. She lived right next to Greg and Jamie Blair, who Wortman also killed. Luckily, the Blair children were able to stay hidden. After Wortman left, they grabbed their dad's cell phone from his dead body and ran over to their neighbors, the McCulleys. Together, the two Blair children and the two McCulley kids hid down in the basement on the phone with 911. When I read the obituary, at the bottom of the obituary, it said, thank you to the 911 operators who stayed on the phone with our children for two hours. And I always wondered, why did the RCMP not rescue? That's the kind of thing the RCMP would promote give badges and medals out to the people who did it, and they weren't promoting it. When I listened to the tape, it was clear now that the kids were there not for two hours. They were there for three hours. Why did the RCMP leave those horrified, terrified kids 
in a basement on the line with a 911 operator. Why didn't they go rescue them? Four children trapped in a basement. Their parents murdered an active shooter on the loose. It's hard to think of a more urgent situation for a police force. Why did it take three hours to save them? I think it's important for us to trace the RCMP response from the beginning. We don't have all the information, far from it. But what little we do know suggests that for the first few hours, the Mounties' response was tepid. There's a person down there with a gun. Uh, they're still looking for him. Please, they're staging at the end of the road there on the two. Uh, not letting anyone down any further, but uh, it's very vague what's going on down there. But there is for sure multiple patients. There were contradictory reports as to when the police were first called. A man named Peter Allen Griffin claims that he called 911 at 9.15 p.m. after he saw Gabriel Wartman's cottage on fire. Remember that name. He comes up again later. The police dispute this and say that Peter Allen Griffin actually called an hour and a half later. The RCMP say that they got their first call at 10.01 a.m. from Jamie Blair after Wartman had killed her husband, Greg. Not long after, Wartman killed her too. The first officers arrived in Portapique around 10.20 p.m., and they soon ran into Andrew McDonald and his wife, who Gabriel Wartman had shot at. The patient we have got shot by him. He was uh, just down there checking out the fire, so there could be other patients around the fire that could be gone already, but we're not on shore. Now remember, McDonald was on the phone with 911 at the time, calling about the fires. But the operator either didn't know or didn't tell McDonald that a murder had taken place in their tiny community just minutes before. McDonald told the three cops at the scene what he knew, that his neighbor Gabe, dressed as an RCMP officer and in an RCMP cruiser, had shot at them without provocation. So what did the police do from here? Mostly, they stayed put. The police were set up on Portapique Beach Road, and as more officers arrived on the scene, they discovered bodies of the people that Gabriel Wortman had murdered. We'll pick you guys up here, and then I think we're going to stop and at least try to get uh, vitals on the guy on the road. On the other side of that fence uh, where you guys picked us up, there's a... A second person lying on the grass there, too. Some of the officers wanted to go deeper into Portapique to try to confront Wortman or to rescue people who were trapped. But police sources have told Palango that Staff Sergeant Natasha Jameson gave an ultimatum. Quote, If you go down there, this will be your last shift in the RCMP. The first thing a police officer does or any sort of uh, first responder does is their first mission is preservation of life. You go to where the shots are. You incapacitate the shooter. That's the first law. They didn't do that. The RCMP deliberately didn't do that. It appears that they may not have followed active shooter doctrine in waiting at the end of the road. Active shooter doctrine says that if you hear shots, if there may still be someone shooting, then you're supposed to go to them. You're not supposed to wait for the SWAT team at the end of the road. 
And even as they were holding their positions, the RCMP didn't call in for help from nearby municipal police forces. They did not call the Truro and Amherst police departments and ask them to seal off roads, which they, I think they would have been able to. The Truro police were eventually informed that Wartman was on the loose, but they were never called in to provide backup or to block the highways. It wasn't until early in the morning when a Truro police officer came upon two lost RCMP officers that the Truro police service even became aware of just how serious the situation was. The RCMP's emergency response team eventually arrived at 12.45 a.m. It was around then that the Blair and McCulley children were finally rescued from the basement that they were hiding in. Even though Wortman had fled port pic the RCMP was convinced he was still in the area. He had just murdered many of his neighbors, so it would have made sense to evacuate everyone who was still alive. But that's not what happened. Before they knew where Wartman was, overnight, on that, that night of April 18th, they did not go in and get all the people out of those homes. Judy Myers, who lived down the road, was never evacuated. You got to remember, there's only maybe 15 houses, 12, 15 houses where people are living or cottages at that time in that whole neighborhood. And 13 people were killed. Only 12 or 13 survived. Even when people came upon the police, they weren't told what was happening. Take the case of Leon Jodry. Leon had moved to port about two and a half years before. And that night, he had a socially distanced dinner with his friends, Greg and Jamie Blair. When I was uh, falling asleep, I heard what sounded like two gunshots, and that's the last thing I, uh, I heard till I woke up at uh, around 3.30 in the morning. That's Leon speaking with the YouTube show Little Grey Cells. He woke up and saw some texts from his friends asking if it was him who was firing off shots and lighting fires. He decided to go out in his half-ton and find out what was going on. He made a left-hand turn onto the port pick Beach Road, and just as it's approaching where Greg Gabriel lives, I seen a flicker of flame, and I, and I seen the SWAT vehicle. I said, there. And we all thought he was an idiot. Nobody really cared for the guy anyway that I knew of. So I, uh, I seen the flicker of flame. First thing I thought, idiot burned his own house. What did he do now? And I wasn't thinking murder. I was thinking anything but that. He drove up next to the emergency response team vehicle. The cop wouldn't roll down his window, but through a loudspeaker, he told Leon to turn around and proceed to the entrance point. So Leon drove back home. Now think about this. Leon has no idea what is going on. Not only did the police not evacuate him, but when he actually encountered them, they just told him to leave. No warning that his neighbor was on a murder spree. They had no questions for him. The officer that, uh, or I don't know, the driver that turned me around middle of the night told me to proceed to the entrance point. Didn't they wonder who I was? They didn't identify me. Didn't they wonder where I went to? They didn't clear my house. They didn't clear my garage. They just didn't do anything right. They didn't evacuate any houses. They didn't evacuate me. What were they doing all night? How did I drive around? All these murder victims, and good thing I didn't pull into a yard, in the middle of the night, and there's not an officer or a SWAT person in sight. How did that happen, and where in the hell was everybody? 
Shortly after Leon got back home, he heard a loud banging on the door. It was Lisa Banfield, Gabriel Wartman's common-law wife. I went and made sure she was by herself, looked at the door, opened the door. She comes in wearing black spandex and like shivering, not shivering cold, just shaking and, you know, in a panic and said that uh, Gabriel lost his mind. And I said, no shit, Lisa, he burned his own house down. He took her to the bathroom and called 911. She was worked up like hysterical a bit, you know, panicking, but she, uh, I can picture as I'm talking to you right clear in my head, she had black uh, spandex clothing on and, uh, and no shoes. The RCMP eventually showed up and took Lisa Banfield in. They questioned Leon, but even then, they didn't tell him that Wartman had killed anyone. Leon put his dogs in his truck and drove away. He left port pic and ended up in DeBert, a nearby community. He encountered no roadblocks along the way. It was only later that Leon learned that Gabriel Wartman was also headed to DeBert. Shortly after Leon left, Wartman would murder two women there. My God, it just sickens me every time that I think that he was behind me after I drove already through the DeBert area. Just just, uh, one of those things you'll never get out of your head. The RCMP's incompetence reached its height with the incident at the fire hall at 10.30 a.m. Well, that was at uh, the Onslow Belmont Volunteer Fire Department, which is just outside Truro. Warman was nearby at the time, but he was not there. And a couple guys, likely full of adrenaline, likely terrified, roll up. They see another officer and they open fire on him. They put something like 30 rounds through that, that building where the volunteer firefighters had gone in to open it up as a place for um, people who had been evacuated from Portopec. Luckily, no one was injured. Not long after the April massacres, Paul Palango says he got a call from a law enforcement source. The first deep throat call I got back in May, the person told me that they're, you can't believe what they're doing. And when you finally find out what the real story is, it's bigger than the 22 murders, essentially. And I said, what could possibly be bigger? He says, it's crazy what they were doing. And right from the beginning, some family members of the victims felt that they weren't being given the full truth. Here's Sandra McCulloch, a lawyer representing the families again. Certainly, there's a great deal of frustration on part of the families since day one, since the tragedy happened. The families, in varying ways, have been consistently frustrated by not having the information that they needed about what's happened to their loved ones, about why it happened to their loved ones, why it happened to them. And uh, as we carry on, it, it seems as though that, that lack of information and, and answers to their questions is coming slower and slower. So certainly there's a great deal of frustration and, and anger on the families as to why they have to work so hard to get the information to which they're entitled. In the aftermath of the murders, the family members were united in their desire for answers. The families spoke with a common voice from early on, saying they wanted a public inquiry. The two people who ultimately had the power to give that to them were Mark Fury, who is a former RCMP staff sergeant, the Attorney General of Nova Scotia, 
and Bill Blair, who's the former Toronto chief of police. But it wasn't long before it became obvious that neither government intended to call a public inquiry. Instead, they decided to appoint an independent commission to investigate the matter. That distinction is important. A public inquiry has far broader powers, especially when it comes to compelling witnesses to testify. When it comes to an independent commission, the Privacy Act might apply, meaning that RCMP officers who retired wouldn't have to testify. And a lot of RCMP officers began to retire. In fact, the lead investigator into what happened at port pic was set to retire at the end of April. Let's be crystal clear. There is every reason to think that the RCMP might do that. If you look at the history of the RCMP, at the fact that they fought British Columbia in court during the Diskensky inquiry, for example, if you look at the corporate culture of the RCMP, it is just a fact that the RCMP struggles with transparency. Both the federal and provincial governments refused to budge. They told the families that they didn't want to re-traumatize them and that they wanted to engage in a restorative justice process. Darcy Dobson, who lost her mother, Heather O'Brien, says that when Mark Fury called her to tell her that they were going to have a non-public inquiry, he said, well, we listened to you, and you said you wanted answers quickly. So that's why we're going with this process instead of a public inquiry. This made Darcy angry because she said, we never said that. We never said we wanted answers quickly. We said we wanted complete answers. In the summer of 2020, the family members and their supporters marched to demand a public inquiry. We demand answers now! Hundreds taking part in a symbolic march to the RCMP detachment in Bible Hill Wednesday. We find out from you guys, the media. Not one family member has been told something before we've seen it on the news. We deserve transparency. We deserve the whole truth and to know where it's coming from. When you don't have answers, your mind creates questions. After Nova Scotia politicians of all political stripes joined in the calls for a public inquiry, the federal and provincial governments finally folded. Bill Blair and Mark Fury, I suspect they know this. The decisions that they took made things worse for the families of the victims. Whatever motivation, Whatever motivated them, that was a mistake. What they did was wrong, in my opinion. Since then, the RCMP has become even less transparent. They've changed their timeline of events that took place multiple times without informing the families. The force has practically stopped updating the public about the investigation. The one major development came in December when the RCMP charged Lisa Bamfield, Wartman's common-law spouse, her brother James Blair Banfield, and a man named Brian Brewster with unlawfully providing ammunition to Wartman. Though the RCMP has said that the three of them didn't know what the ammunition would be used for. They have yet to submit a plea. There's all kinds of difficult, difficult questions connected with her, and we won't know the answers until there's an inquiry, I don't think. Also in December, a document leaked from the RCMP. It was a moratorium on the destruction of information in the Gabriel Wartman case. 
Palango says that his law enforcement source told him back in May that the RCMP was editing files and, quote, pasteurizing evidence. The document seemed to indicate that that might be true. What does that moratorium tell you? It tells you that they're destroying evidence, much like my sources have been telling me and that I've been reporting on. Now, we don't have any confirmation that the RCMP has actually destroyed any evidence. They've said that this moratorium was simply part of normal procedure. But the actions of the RCMP during the massacres and their stonewalling afterwards has raised the suspicions of many people. And Palango, at least, believes that there's only two conclusions that a reasonable person can come to. So you have to look at it and say to yourself, were the RCMP sort of Olympic caliber and competent, or were they following a game plan? So far, we focused on that first explanation, incompetence. But I think it's important that we at least talk about some of the circumstantial evidence that suggests that there might be something else going on here. The story begins long before the April massacres, because alongside his career as a denturist, Gabriel Wartman had ties to organized crime. He has, over his his lifetime, been involved in all kinds of criminal activity, smuggling things across the border, allegations that he was involved in drug distribution, methamphetamines, things like that. There are allegations stories suggesting that he was moving drugs into the community, that he had connections to the Hells Angels. There was a name I asked you to remember earlier, Peter Allen Griffin. He had known Wortman for about 15 years, and he's sort of an odd guy. He had connections to a lot of bikers when he was in Nova Scotia. His family had been friends with the infamous Mercero brothers, two Hell's Angels who were both murdered around the turn of the century. Then Griffin went out west to Edmonton and eventually was arrested in a drug uh, trafficking operation that involved La Familia, the Mexican drug cartel. Griffin was eventually paroled back to Nova Scotia and came to live on a shack on Gabriel Wartman's property. They would often drink together and hang out. Griffin worked at a sign shop in Truro. In prison, he had learned how to do this kind of work, put decals on and paint cars and stuff like that. And he did that when he came out working at Sidsell Signs. According to the RCMP, it was Griffin who installed the decals on Wortman's decommissioned RCMP cruiser that made it look authentic. A few weeks before his killing spree, Wortman withdrew in cash from a Brinks facility. Stephen Marr, Paul Palango, and Shannon Gormley broke that story from McLean's. And that story also introduced a new theory as to why the RCMP may have been so timid on the night that Wartman began his rampage. We spoke with law enforcement sources who said, well... This sounds like it could be an undercover operation. I've been told by law enforcement people that someone in Wortman's circle was an agent. That's what they believe. They said it's going to be impossible to get it out because they're going to do everything they can to cover that up. 
RCMP sources told the reporters that Wortman's withdrawal of hundreds of thousands of dollars directly from a Brinks facility is consistent with how the RCMP provides money to informants and agents. And banking sources told them that it was highly unlikely that a civilian would be allowed to withdraw money in this manner. Now to be clear, we don't have any direct evidence that Wortman or anyone close to him was a confidential informant or agent for the RCMP. But here are some of the facts that have come to light in recent months. The officer who first swore the warrants related to the massacres, Sergeant Angela Harlock, was a veteran Mountie who specialized in drug trafficking, outlaw bikers, and confidential informants. Then there's the fact that despite numerous complaints about him to the police, Wortman was never arrested. One of the reasons that it seemed like a possibility is that the police had repeatedly been given reason to look into this guy, right? They'd been told he had illegal guns, that he was threatening violence, that he appeared to have assaulted his partner. And law enforcement people who I talked to said that when you get a report that someone has illegal guns, you say, oh, does he have a gun license? And it's a matter of two minutes work to discover that he does not, in which case you have a reason to go pay him a visit and see if he does have guns, because any guns that he has are illegal. During the course of their reporting, Marr and Palango were able to get their hands on the rules the RCMP is supposed to follow when it comes to confidential informants and agents. Got a hold of the RCMP manual, which shows that the RCMP is allowed and in fact may be required to deceive the public about that kind of question. Can you document this? It's impossible because another part of the undercover op manual says the RCMP can lie, deceive, do anything they can to protect the operation, but must answer questions in court. The RCMP has denied that Gabriel Wortman was in any way a confidential informant or involved in any kind of undercover operation. But the RCMP's own rules say that even if he was, they could lie to the public about it. That doesn't mean that they are lying about it. But Palango has come to believe that this may be why the Nova Scotia and federal governments were so insistent on not holding a full public inquiry. So now you're going to see where my suspicions about an undercover operation are sort of building. Because what was the first thing that the government and the RCMP did back in April and May? They said, oh, we had everything under control. We might have made a few mistakes. We're just we're going to have a, a review. Well, a review, you call no witnesses. It has no authority. It has no judicial authority. There are other suspicious circumstances that seem to fit this theory. Take the fact that the RCMP didn't call for help from the local municipal police forces. Well, they did call for assistance, but it was only to the New Brunswick RCMP and the Fredericton police force. But then why did you call New Brunswick and not Truro? Truro is a very well-trained police force. 36 members is 20 minutes away. They don't call them. If you look at that manual, it says, if an undercover operation breaks down, the RCMP must contain that. Don't bring in other police forces 
and only work with the police forces who may be involved in the operation. So if there was an undercover operation and it was being run out of New Brunswick, which is only, uh, what, 45 minutes, an hour away from Portapec, all this sort of makes sense. And that brings us back to those four children who are hiding out in the basement on the line with a 911 operator after their parents had been murdered. The RCMP didn't go in to rescue them for three hours. But Peter Allen Griffin, the convicted drug trafficker and close associate of Gabriel Wortman, was also hiding out in his own home. And the RCMP went and extracted him a full hour before they got to the children. And that is what I have a hard time wrapping my head around. The RCMP says that they had the McCulley home where the children were hiding out surrounded so that it was safe. But it still doesn't explain why they prioritized evacuating Griffin first. Now, I want to be honest here. I don't know what to make of this theory. The skeptical side of me says that we don't have any direct evidence for any of this. All of it is circumstantial. But over the last few months, as I've been reporting this series on the police in Canada, I've been exposed to some pretty wild stories that I normally wouldn't have believed were true. It sounds absurd to say that the RCMP were arming black youth and sending them out to rob banks in downtown Toronto. But they were. It sounds like a conspiracy theory to say that the Saskatoon police were just kidnapping random indigenous people and leaving them in the cold to die. But it wasn't. That's just what happened. The veracity of those stories doesn't make this one true. But this reporting has led me to think that the police are capable of doing things you would never believe. And then they'll lie about it for years. So I don't know if the RCMP didn't do everything they could to save lives in Portapique because they were trying to salvage an undercover operation. But I do think it's a question worth asking. Whatever the explanation, incompetence, or something worse, the Nova Scotia massacres are another blow to an increasingly beleaguered federal police force. This is absolutely damaging to the force. But before this even happened, they were on their way to losing the contract in uh, Surrey, B.C., their largest detachment. That's where they trained everyone. Surrey, which is my hometown, has about as many Mounties as the entire province of Nova Scotia. So why did they lose Surrey, B.C.? Because of poor staffing, under-policing, lying, deception, no accountability, Things that have been sort of evident for years about the RCP. That's their MO. That's how they operate. Scandals around sexual harassment and anti-Indigenous racism have been rocking the force for years. Alberta and British Columbia are looking at possibly creating their own provincial police services to replace the RCMP. And even before the April massacres, Colchester County, which includes Portapique, was considering hiring the Truro police force and kicking out the RCMP. It's hard to imagine that a decade from now, it'll be Mounties patrolling Portapic. The RCMP is facing a series of cascading scandals. And if they are found to have deceived the Canadian public about what happened in Nova Scotia, 
it could be a fatal blow to the force. And we will soon have a public inquiry into what happened in Nova Scotia. The family members who lost their loved ones in the most horrific way imaginable continue to fight to get the truth out. They're currently suing the RCMP in a class action lawsuit, and they are still demanding answers, demanding the truth about what happened, however ugly it might be. Charlene Bagley's father, Tom Bagley, was murdered by Gabriel Wartman on the morning of April 19th. Late last year, she posted this video online. For those who don't know me, my name is Charlene Bagley. My father's name was Tom Bagley, and he was one of the victims this past April. To say my life has been a nightmare the last eight months is a complete understatement. I continue to wake up daily with visions of what I think happened based on the very little information that we've received. Trying to piece together the story that seems so unbelievable and surreal that it's my life now. The story we've been told from the very beginning has changed so many times. There's so many holes that one would wonder, is there something they're trying to hide? My criticism goes with those who were in charge that evening. The ones that made the decisions or lack thereof. The one who decided that maybe It wasn't a good idea to alert the province that some madman is going around and killing people. The person who decided that maybe it was a good idea to leave four children who were traumatized beyond belief to suffer for hours in a basement while you went in and evacuated Mr. Griffin and his family, you guys decided that social media via Twitter was a good idea to alert the province of this. I would have thought that maybe you would have established maybe more social media outlets at that point in time. My father used to start his day by checking his Facebook every morning while drinking his coffee. Had that alert been up, when you first were able to identify Wartman, he may be still here today. Because I don't think he would have walked up. I don't know. We will never know. Perhaps some full transparency would help. Perhaps telling the truth to the families would help instead of trying to tell us what you think we need. By you telling us you don't want to re-traumatize us well, I'm telling you now, buddy, I can't, you can't re-traumatize me any more than I am. So when I ask a question, I want the damn truth. Let me decide whether I'm going to be re-traumatized or not. The lies and the lack of transparency is what's traumatizing me right now. I know my father would want more than anything for me to move on and be happy for the rest of my life. But I also know that if it was the other way around, and if it was me targeted that night, he would have done everything in his power 
to find out the truth. And I'm here to tell you, Dad, I vow to you, my last dying breath, I will find the truth. I swear to you, it's coming out. There's good reason to doubt that even a public inquiry will give us the full, unvarnished truth. I think the public inquiry is going to do everything it can to to cover it up. I think they'll sacrifice a few retired members. They're retiring, like, uh, dropping like flies right now. This is the RCMP MO. They'll uh, sort of drag it out as much as they can. The Crown will drag it out. Even if there's nothing more to this story than simple incompetence, the RCMP has much to answer for. There was a massacre at Portapic Beach on April 18th. 13 people were killed. The RCMP were there clearly for some of the murders. Then he disappeared. They didn't set anything up. And the next day, nine people were killed, including an RCMP officer, Heidi Stevenson. That's the public policy story right there. They didn't do their job. They didn't set out an alert. They didn't block the roads. Nine people died because of what the RCMP did. That's uncontrovertible. That's what happened. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This is the final episode of our season on policing. If you liked this episode or this season as a whole, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on reporting done by Stephen Marr, Paul Palango at Frank Magazine, Shannon Gormley at McLean's, the CBC's Fifth Estate, Sarah Ritchie and Alex Kress at Global News, Tim Bousquet and Zane Woodford at the Halifax Examiner, and so many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Archie at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Dami Lola Oname. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.